Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before Rashida Jones landed the lead in Angie Tribeca, she'd had regular parts on Parks and Recreation, The Office, and all kinds of other great shows. And there's one thing that ties a bunch of her characters together. When I say one thing, I mean that literally. It's a blouse. The blouse is a is a very sensible white blouse from theory, uh, with a like a sailor collar, like a like you can tie it in the front. And I know it's the same blouse because the first time I wore it, they put like an extra button on it for me to like make it close, so it was really sensible. And then I I think I wore it on the office, and then it went back to some wardrobe house, and it came back to me on. The social network, and I wore it in social network, and then it went away, and then it came back to me again on the Muppets, and I just said, enough, enough, and I stole it. Rashida Jones, hardened criminal. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Rashida Jones about playing the straight man in her latest show, Angie Tribeca. She'll tell me how growing up around superstars like Michael Jackson informed her own ambitions of showbiz success. There was something about that that I was like, that's cool, I guess. I don't know if I want, I don't want to like change the weather in a room. Then later, I'll talk to Ramiro Gomez and Lawrence Weschler. Weschler and Gomez have collaborated on the book Domestic Scenes. Gomez's art highlights the domestic workers who often go unnoticed in the idyllic landscapes of Los Angeles. It would be easier to have said nothing and just continue doing my job, considering all these things that I'm bringing up challenge me personally to respond to something in the world that doesn't get changed easily. And I'll tell you about Orson Welles' best movie that's also fun. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Rashida Jones might be the single warmest screen presence in America. She starred for years on Parks and Recreation, one of the warmest sitcoms on TV, and she played a nurse named Anne, best friends with Amy Poehler's lead character. Great role for a lady you basically want to be best friends with the second she comes on screen. That sweetness makes her the perfect comic straight woman. In her new show, Angie Tribeca, she puts those skills to use. She's the center of a completely ridiculous police procedural in the tradition of police squad or airplane. Here's a scene from the second season of the show. Uh, Angie is caught collecting data that's, uh, you'll be shocked to hear, the key to a conspiracy that may be bigger than she realizes. Tribeca, get out of there. There's a red dot coming. I'm almost done. You're almost done, all right. You looking for this? Did you really think you could take down Mayhem Global? Agent Duran, why? You're the perfect woman. You're the perfect FBI agent. It doesn't make any sense. When you see the bigger picture, Tribeca, it will all make sense, and you're going to be a big part of it. Really? I'm going to be a big part of it? Wait, I don't want any part of it. But, like, how big of a part? I'm so confused. (laughs) Rashida Jones, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So this is a real ridiculous program. Uh, it and, is ridiculous. Yes. yes, and you, and you know, you made you made your name in the relatively grounded, you know, uh, uh, documentary style 
worlds of Parks and Recreation and The Office, um, you know, which were silly sometimes, certainly, but uh, pretty real. Um, this is like full-on airplane nonsense. Uh, was that something you'd ever done before? Not really, um, but I really wanted to. I, I think I didn't even know how much I really wanted to do this kind of comedy because Airplane is one of my all-time favorite films. I've seen it so many times. I used to watch Amazon Women in the Mo- on the Moon constantly when I was a kid and Naked Gun, and I just I had to try it. I had to feel what it felt like to be involved in something that funny. It's a it's a very specific tone, though. I mean, it's something where, you know, I think when you are doing comedy, your goal is always to do whatever it is that sort of points to the joke and gets the laugh. You know, that's sort of how you're trained. But if you point to a joke in a show with this tone, it sort of deflates. Yeah, it's really tricky. And I think because I like these movies so much, I just assumed because I know them so well, it'd be so easy to execute this tone. And the truth is, it's really not. And I think the first season was a little bit more of like a learning curve for me because I wanted to point to the jokes. That's all I wanted to do was just be like, look, this is so funny. Do you guys see what I'm seeing? But I've learned that that's definitely not the best way to maximize the joke. So as time has gone on, you know, I've like found a way to just hang back a little bit and let things happen around me. But it's hard. Was there like a moment in in the first season that you had to sort of consciously change what you were doing? It really came in between the first and the second because I saw – I watched the show and it was really funny and I really liked it. But I felt like I could do a better job of kind of like just staying in my character and not – having to be a part of the joke. That's because that's your instinct. Like you said, it's like you want you want to show everybody where it is and what it looks like and when it's happening. And the truth is, I serve the joke better if I just like relax and do my own thing. You know, it's like being in a relationship. And, you know, when they cast Airplane, I, I watched something with the Zucker brothers. They wanted to cast the guys who were the guys like Peter Graves um, Robert Stack, Leslie Nielsen, these were serious dramatic actors who played chief of police, head of the hospital, the guys who delivered the bad news, the guys who brought gravitas to their performance. And like that's why that movie works because every line they deliver, you know, somebody delivering like whatever, you know, Shirley, you can't be serious. I am serious and stop calling me Shirley. That could go wrong really fast unless you believe what you're saying, you know. So that I would try to find – whatever my version of that buying into my reality and and my circumstances was for for me. You know, in a funny way, it's not that different from the dramatic versions of these shows. You know, it's not that different no. from uh, one of the CSI shows or one of the Law & Order shows where, you know, the characters really serve the narrative, not the other way around. And at the same time, those actors have to bring enough to the performance that the audience cares about them and cares about what's going on. Exactly. And, you know, with Law & Order, it's really tricky because there's never any personal life stuff. So they have to – they have a giant job, which is like push the narrative forward. But then you, we as an audience has to care about them enough to keep watching and you have to do that without any trace of their actual lives. So <laughs> – 
you know, that's a great model for me. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for actors who can pull that off for like 15 years because, you know, you're not you can't just tune out. You're not a, you're not a newscaster like you have to be engaged in the story and you have to make people care about it through you. Were there like moves that you saw people on those types of shows doing or little moments th- that they had that you wanted to echo in Angie Tribeca? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, there's one thing that we on set, we call it the D'Onofrio, mm-hmm. um, where Vincent D'Onofrio does a thing when he's interrogating people where he he puts his hands on the table and he gets to, he's tall. So he gets to their level when they're sitting down and he's like looking down and then he's like pretty close to their face. And he's sort of like he just like like just cocks his head so that all of a sudden it's just like D'Onofrio face like in the suspect's face it's a really like scary effective move so I try to do that whenever I'm interrogating anyone (laughs) let's listen to another scene from Angie Tribeca and my guest is the star of the show Rashida Jones Um, so Angie who's uh, the detective that uh, Rashida plays is on probation Uh, She's had her badge and gun taken away, but uh, she can't help investigating a string of accidental elderly deaths. And uh, needless to say, her lieutenant is unhappy with her. I am going to say this once. Stand down. Stand down. What if this is somehow linked to Councilman Dreyfus? What if Mayhem Global is somehow involved in this? What if, what if, what if, what if? Your what ifs are going to cost me my job and my pension. I have $80,000 into a boat with major plumbing problems. And you're drumming up political scandals based on dead old people? Now, I don't want to hear another word. Smigmo. You got a lot of nerve, Tribeca. (laughs) I'm going to say this once. I'm going to say this once. It's a great (laughs) Stand down. Stand down. (laughs) Oh, God. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Rashida Jones. She's the star of Angie Tribeca. The show returned this week for its second season. You really, I mean, you've played every type of role that requires a lady who looks both beautiful and comfortable in a suit. <laughs> yeah, that's that for sure is uh, is like an alternate life for me. There's a lot of suits in my life. There's a blouse that I've gotten to wear in several TV shows and movies the exact same blouse because I wear business casual so much that it's like just finds me. So I finally stole it and now it's at home because <laughs> I couldn't see it anymore. I, I like the idea that this that this blouse is like chasing you from wardrobe, wardrobe truck to wardrobe truck. It is. It's crazy. I don't even get it. What, but I have it now. Tell me about the blouse. I want to hear about the blouse. The blouse is a is a very sensible white blouse from theory uh with a like a sailor collar like a like you can tie it in the front mm-hmm. and i know it's the same blouse because the first time i wore it they put like an extra button on it for me to like make it close so it was really sensible and then i i think i wore it on the office and then it went back to some wardrobe house and it came back to me on the social network and i wore it in social network and then it went away and then it came back to me again on the muppets and I just said, enough, enough. <laughs> and I stole it. We mentioned your possible alternate lives. Did you aspire to show business when you were a kid? You know, 
I wanted to be a judge or the president of the United States, you know, whichever was easiest. I think all kids um, grow up dreaming of becoming a judge. Oh, they do? You think yeah, so? Sure. I think all children, if you went to a preschool right now and you asked 20 children, at least 10 of them would say judge. Oh, my God. They love robes. My writing partner calls me Justice Jones <laughs> because I'm, I still have that bone in my body, which I'm, I'm like, just obsessed with justice. But, um, yeah, it's not – it wasn't a very, like – not a very superhero-ish job for, like, a five-year-old to dream about. But um, I definitely always did plays and uh, sang and did theater and – I think I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I would perform, but I it was never like I didn't want to be famous and I didn't want to – I wasn't like I'm going to be a giant famous actress. I don't think. And I mean you knew what that was because your mother had been a famous actress. Yeah. Um, and your your mother was uh, is Peggy Lipton, who had been on the Mod Squad. Another cop. And your dad is Quincy Jones, who's obviously a, not just a very famous music producer, uh, but also uh, famously friends with every famous person in the world. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think he's accomplished more than that. Well, I've, I said legendary <laughs> music producer as well and a gifted musician and uh, so on and so forth. But one of the notable things about him is he's legendarily charming. Um, so, like, you knew what being famous was. Um, so what did, you, what did you think about it when you were thinking about whether you wanted to be a creative person? You know, it's, it was such a different time. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and there was no paparazzi. There was no social media. And so I think what it means to be famous then is very different. I mean, even my dad, you know, who was in his 40s when I was a kid, he didn't really have that same visible notoriety until probably he won all those Grammys for Thriller, for producing Thriller. His contemporaries, his peers knew who he was. They respected him. But he certainly wasn't being, you know, people weren't talking to him in restaurants and telling them that they were fans. That was sort of like a thing that, that developed later. Um, so for me, like fame, quote unquote fame, was really just about like people admiring and respecting you, which is like clearly not what it is now. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that kind of fame I'm into, I, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around the idea that like you belong to the world and that you chose to belong to, to the world because you wanted to do this thing that just happens to be seen by everybody. Um, and I, you know, I'm really, I'm fiercely protective of my privacy and my life. And, you know, that part of it, I don't love. I think the nice thing about it is that it allows you to keep working and it gives you opportunity to keep making things and if it, that means making something that's like a little off color or that m might make you less popular as an actress that's okay you know you can actually do that i understand that uh fame was a very different thing when you were a kid and and certainly by the time you were paying attention your mom was mostly retired from acting and you know your dad has never been a, a famous person famous person but i did read an article in which you described one of your favorite childhood memories as uh, walking Michael Jackson's llama. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. My childhood was definitely weird. I mean, I, you know, besides the fact that my parents are artists, you know, I was around a lot of famous people because, you know, my dad produced Michael Jackson and I 
went to school with all the Jacksons and, you know, other people, like other celebrities' kids. And, you know, that's just kind of the community you grow up in. So, like, I knew I knew what it was like to be really famous and what that looked like. And I was still kind of, like, a little bit embarrassed by it. Like, I felt like, you know, Michael Jackson was so famous. And anytime he goes in public it changes the whole energy of everywhere he is you know it's like a it's like a doppler system so there was something about that that i was like that's cool i guess i don't know if i want i don't want to like change the weather in a room you know yeah like i that's not that's nothing that i ever aspired to to do even though i saw that and i understood it like i also remember like i saw i've seen so many people get famous be rich and successful be celebrated and then totally collapse, whether it's the pressure of all that attention or, you know, substance abuse or just the moment had passed. Like, I've seen the entire trajectory of fame. So, like, it's not something that I've I, I've ever – I didn't see it from the outside. I never thought it was like, wow, how cool. Look how happy those people are. Look at how fulfilled they are. Look at how great their lives are because I know that that's not true. Like, I've seen people collapse under the weight of it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rashida Jones. She's been in the cast of hit TV comedies like The Office and Parks and Recreation. She now plays the lead on the TBS show Angie Tribeca. When you were like a teenager, uh, was the world you grew up in something that you wanted to leave? I mean, to a certain extent, I think everybody, when they're a teenager, fantasizes about what the rest of the world is like. I, I always wanted to go to school on the East Coast, and I I really wanted to go to boarding school, but my mom wasn't really that down with that. So the minute I was done with high school, I was I just had like this collegiate experience built up in my head, and I wanted it to involve winter and, you know, fall and dorms and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, I wanted to get out of it in that way, yes. But, you know, I'm back now, so <laughs> I guess not that much. <laughs> Why did you want to go to boarding school? I don't know. I had, like, I, I had read a lot of books that were, like, kids, kind of, like, English, Victorian boarding school books. I just, it always was, like, very kind of romantic to me, the idea of, like, wearing a uniform and, you know, rushing to class and the dining halls and the architecture and the you know the the strictness of it i don't know I, there was something about it i really liked i was i was really obsessed with order and discipline when i was a kid and i just liked the like academic setting seemed really awesome to me i also love my parents it's not i was it wasn't trying to escape my parents my parents are great it was just it was just the the fantasy of school you went to harvard <laughs> what what was it like when you got there harvard's great i mean i i definitely had some culture shock um you know, it took a while to find my people and to figure out what I was really truly interested in. And I had some like, you know, I had some moments where there's been a thing thematically in my life where I because I love order and structure, I really put all my trust into like institutions and teachers and people who know more than me. And so anytime that's like disappointing or imperfect, it's it feels like monumental to me. I get really sad. So I think maybe just the fantasy of like wanting to go to the sporting school and then going to Harvard. I mean, Harvard, it's Harvard, you know. Um, and I I was like my my sophomore year, I was a little bit depressed. I was in a dorm that was really far away from school. I wasn't particularly close with my roommates. And so 
I felt a little bit lost, you know, and there was probably a moment I wanted to come home. Um, but then by the time I got to junior and senior year, I was I found my people, I found my activities, and I found the things that were making me feel inspired. And, you know, I wish I had just – I wish I had like another year there. But really the people, the way that they select the student body is – pretty remarkable like because you end up finding these people that you would have never met otherwise you know live in completely weirdo different places and states and have completely different upbringings and you find something about each other to connect with did you find other people that you could connect with because you related to them i mean you have a pretty unusual background i mean besides just the fact of you know growing up with michael jackson's llama around um, you know, your dad's African-American, your your mom is white and Jewish, um, and, you know, you were from Southern California about as far in the United States, or at least in the lower 48 as you can get from Harvard. Um, were there people who could, you know, who you could re- relate to identity-wise? It was difficult because I think at first I really wanted to, I really wanted to bond I really wanted to be a part of the black community. That was like kind of part of my decision-making process with schools. Like I'd visit, you know, like the black houses on campus and stuff like that. And that didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. I like I was I had a group of friends and then there was like some girl stuff and they weren't into me and that didn't work out. So it was like it was a very much like a um a Goldilocks scenario where I just kept kind of trying to figure out you know, who was right for me. Then I got lumped in with, like, the legacy kids, and those were certainly not my people because I don't have anything in common with, like, a Harvard legacy student, you know. I mean, my family was so proud that I went to Harvard, but, like, that's not, you know, it's not like we're generations deep in the Ivy League. So, although my grandfather did go to Harvard Law School, but it just, it was still atypical in my my immediate family. And then I, I ended up finding, like, just kind of, like, Random friends, like humor was a a big part of it. Um, Like my friends that I've worked with, you know, Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreation, we met freshman year and stayed friends this whole time and got to work together, which was so great. And that was really humor-based, you know. I think it was really like the perspective on the world was the thing that bonded us. How important a part of your identity is uh, being Jewish? It's very important. Um, I, you know, I did that show, Who Do You Think You Are? You know, that it's that genealogy show. Mm -hmm. It was on PBS and then it moved to NBC. I think it's on another channel now, TLC. Um, And I went, I really did it for my mom because I know that she really wanted to know more about our family history. Obviously, like being a Jew who, you know, had immigrant great grandparents, grandparents. There's so little that we actually know. Um, And we ended up in Latvia where uh, most of my mom's uh, maternal side was from. And, um, you know, I I was in a forest where my entire family, you know, is so dramatic, I know, but was shot and killed in a day, you know, along with 40,000 other Jews. And there's so many American Jews who have that story to tell, unfortunately. But um, I don't know. It felt like this really incredible moment where I couldn't believe that I was alive <laughs> because I'm black and I'm Jewish and so 
many people that I'm related to have died and been persecuted. And, you know, here I am like this, you know, we looked at our family chart and it was like all of my great grandfather's brothers and all of their families just wiped out in a day. And we were like this long tail, the only tail left in that family. And like, here I am doing all this stuff and living a great life. Um, And I feel like just being able to acknowledge that, you know, culturally, that being Jewish, coming to this country, you know, being survivors, it's very important to me to remember that and to pay honor to that. You you spoke at Harvard recently. Um, yeah. You spoke, you spoke to current students. Um, you know, it's such, a, it's such an unusual uh, – Harvard is such a sp- special and unusual world of, you know – uh very young people of extraordinary achievement and uh very young people of extraordinary privilege um and you know it's just it's a real it's a real mix of uh in, intense stuff um what did you feel like what did you feel like you wanted to give those people well, you know, I mean, everybody, when they graduate from school, they're nervous. They don't know what their life's going to be like. But Harvard particularly, I mean, it's great because it gives you this armor. You feel you you feel like, you know, you did it. You went to Harvard, and that's a really big deal. And so, you know, a lot of my speech, it was funny. I was trying to be funny, but I was basically just telling them that this is sort of the last time that anybody's going to root for their success <laughs> because – I know. I mean, I'm a Harvard grad and there's, you know, this thing happens to you after you graduate where you tell people where you went to school and they immediately think you're gloating. Um, and also they're kind of like, oh, you're OK. I get it. You're successful. We're, it's, people aren't really like, oh, let's let me let me give you a leg up, Harvard grad. You know, they're just they're, they just expect that you're you just attract success to you. So um, I don't know. I, I tried to tried to make a point about, you know, making sure that they pick something that they love because I know there's a lot of pressure. You go to Ivy League schools and there's all this recruiting and everybody goes into money and that's fine. But I feel like, you know, you're already extraordinary because the kinds of grades you have to get and the kinds of things you have to do to get to Harvard and then the kind of worth work ethic you have to get to have to graduate is enormous that, you know, it's it's important that you pick something that you love and that, you know, feels challenging to you and inspiring to you. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be banking. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's was kind of the gist. I, I want to ask you, uh, I, I want to ask you about something uh, a little bit unusual. I don't know if it's something that you talk a lot about in interviews, but one of the, one of your early film credits was uh, you had already done you had already done a fair amount of TV at this point. You'd been on Boston Public. Uh, you'd you'd done Freaks and Geeks. Was uh, this movie called Death of a Dynasty that was directed <laughs> by Dame Dash, the <laughs> co-founder of Rockefeller Records? Um, and uh, yeah, I've just heard a lot about Dame Dash as a person um, uh, from people that know him. He sounds like a real trip, uh, and I wonder what it was like to be in a movie that he directed. Well, to be honest, he wasn't there that much. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I mean, I've known Damon for a long time. Yeah, he's got a lot of energy, and he was really fun. But, um, you know, he's more he's like a hype man. Like, he's he likes to keep it big picture, so much so, in fact, that, like, the first AD was directing a lot of movie. <laughs> um, but it was, like, fun. It was totally fun and weird. I was in that movie with Eben Moss Bacharach. You know, he's on... Um, He's on Girls. And we were both like, what's happening? What are we doing? I don't uh, – what? So it was just kind of like a funny, trippy experience. I just kind of showed up and tried to figure out what was happening. I'll continue my conversation with Rashida Jones after a break. We'll talk about her different roles as actor, writer, and producer. Then later, Ramiro Gomez and Lawrence Weschler will drop by to discuss their new collaboration, the art book Domestic Scenes. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Starry Station, the touchscreen router for fast Wi-Fi. Starry Station was designed to give you a better way to game, stream, and surf throughout your home. You can see your entire network at a glance, get suggestions on how to fix problems, and finally know if you're getting the internet speed you pay for. It even has parental controls that let you block usage on specific devices during certain hours of the day. Learn more about Starry Station at starry.com slash bullseye. Here's a great way to listen to Bullseye, NPR One. It's an app for your phone, kind of like Pandora for public radio. It's full of news and podcasts, including Bullseye. Whenever you're ready to listen, NPR One has something great just for you. Find it on your app store, NPR O-N-E. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor, writer, and producer Rashida Jones. She plays the lead in the TBS show Angie Tribeca, which returned for its second season this week. So uh, a couple years ago, you had a movie coming out, and you tweeted awkward pictures of yourself as an adolescent. Um, And they're adorable. Uh, You were a very adorable adolescent, but like awkward, as all adolescents are. But I think if I imagine what someone... Uh, who is as sort of beautiful and composed as you are, uh, looks like as an adolescent. I just sort of imagine a smaller version of their current self. Um, And you were kind of awkward and pudgy and uh, goofy. And uh, I've read you talking about that in interviews. And I guess I just wondered whether you became a beautiful adult woman just through the ways that our body changes as we grow up or whether at some point you decided to uh, choose that? Um, I don't, you know, that's never been like a priority for me. You know, I was like a heavy kid and for a couple years and then I started playing sports and, you know, immediately dropped weight. It was also like I was at an awkward age, but... I never – it's just not – I have I was never raised to put my looks first, you know, and I'm not unaware of the way that I look and that it has impact on other people and I am grateful for my genes. But I also – it's a depreciating asset and there's a lot of stock put on it for women in a way that I think is unfortunate and um, and takes away from other things that are really great about life. And if I put too much – Stocking it myself, I fear that I won't have time to do things that are actually important to me. You, you've also um, – you're also a screenwriter. Um, but it seems to me like that lack of control and not just in terms of – not just in terms of control over how you look or how you age. But 
just uh, the lack of control that's inherent in acting is one of the hardest parts of being an actor, uh, especially for somebody who you know grew up wanting to be a judge and like have there be rules, and if you follow the rules, you succeed. Um, that that inherent in acting is like other people judging you and deciding whether you're good enough to do the thing that you want to create for art must be very difficult. Yeah, well, that's probably why I picked it because you know there is there's a very strict set of rules when it comes to acting and and you know it's binary it's yes or no so like you know it definitely scratched that itch for me my rule following itch where it's like you go in they say no and then you have to just get them to say yes eventually and that's the only way that you get the job so you know now that I'm 20 years down the line with acting I wish that I had been a little bit more proactive about breaking out of that system of rules but I think because that was like the the kind of person I was it was hard for me to imagine not following the rules and now you know I write and I produce and I I find ways to get around you know all of these supposed rules but it took me a a long time to get there and I think that's because I was sort of built to follow rules or so I thought I mean it, it seems like some actors the great gift is the ability to throw oneself into something, even if it's an audition, and you know that almost certainly at the other side of you giving all of your emotional energy to it is probably just going to be someone saying you have the wrong hair color. Yeah, it's it's really nuts. Like you walk into a room, you spill your guts all over the floor, and people are like, thank you so much. Like there's your – don't forget your kidney. I mean it's really – it's brutal. It's brutal, and it's – it's also like it's not necessarily a meritocracy and I really do believe that like my path, my success, there was a lot of luck involved in it and it was just like luck and timing and I thought of quitting many, many, many times and, you know, I am I got lucky. I got lucky. I got like a big break and I was also able to kind of support myself as an actress for a long time even before I got a big break and like both those things are like remarkable. There's a very rare thing to happen to people and you know I I know that I'm I'm from LA and I grew up with parents in the business but the truth is like nobody cares about that like nobody's casting anybody because they're somebody's daughter they would get fired if they did that and so I went through the same paces as everybody else and you know I, I know I know a lot of talented people that don't work and you know a lot of talented people that do. And so it was just kind of like I had it. It was the right part and the right time. And I got lucky. Well, Rashida Jones, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come beyond Bullseye. I so admire your work. I thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Rashida Jones' TBS show Angie Tribeca returned for its second season this week. You can catch it Mondays on TBS. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Years ago, Ramiro Gomez was flipping through a magazine while the kids he was nannying were asleep. As he looked at the interior design shots and the carefully tended gardens, he started to think about the people who worked in those homes. Nannies like him, gardeners, cleaners, cooks. He started painting those people into the magazine pages and naming them. In the years since, he's continued with what he has in the past called documenting the undocumented. Cardboard cutouts of landscapers leaned against the hedges of fancy Beverly Hills homes 
David Hockney's California paintings with pool cleaners carefully inserted, that kind of thing. Gomez is the subject of a new book called Domestic Scenes. It's written by Lawrence Weschler, and both Weschler and Gomez are here for a chat. Gentlemen, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, Ramira, I was a male nanny briefly. Uh, It's a small community. Uh, How did you end up with that job? It is a very small community. Uh, But no, I had a lot of childcare experience growing up, taking care of cousins, um, that kind of thing. And then in school, I tried to be a teacher. So I had a lot of early childcare education. You grew up in San Bernardino? I did. I was born and raised in San Bernardino, California. What was San Bernardino like when you were a kid? Not to say that it's changed much, but San Bernardino had a lot of life. Uh, There was actually a very vibrant mall called the Carousel Mall that was the center of everything. Now that mall has closed up and is boarded up, and it's the story of San Bernardino. Those things are still there. Those buildings that are empty that once were filled with people uh, experiencing the city now sit as reminders of how it once was. So what did it mean to you to get out of San Bernardino? What did you want? I wanted to experience life. I felt it was important to leave. I remember thinking at one point I wanted to stay there and be around my friends and family. And, you know, it's a little bit of comfort. It's like a blanket to stay around. But with my ideas, the creative side, the uh, the need to be in Hollywood, the need to be in new spaces and feeling new things, I felt that I needed to leave to explore and experience something outside of what I grew up with. Did you think of yourself as gay as an adolescent? Yes. Early on, especially at you know elementary level, I remember I felt closer to some of the guy friends I had in school. Um, I was fascinated with certain characters on TV, certain actors, uh, and I just wanted them to be my friends at first. That's what I felt. I wanted them to um, be someone that I could hang out with. That's how my... Um, I guess, interest in them developed. (laughs) Did you feel like there was a place for you to have have an identity as both a member of this really tight-knit community and gay? Or did you, as a kid, think of those things as two things that were in opposition? Um, I think they were connected in some ways. I would see on TV representations of the gay lifestyle from a Mexican audience, and it was always cartoonish, extravagant, flamboyant representations that I didn't really feel were me. So I grew to hide some of these feelings and emotions, and I think because I wasn't so flamboyant, my family originally didn't find things in my personality that were anything outside of that normal. Um, You know, you can only hide so much. Ren Wessler, how did you uh, how did you first encounter Romero's work? It's not that long ago, about eighteen months ago. I was in Chicago, and uh, when I'm at the Art Institute there, I, there's four or five paintings I love gravitating toward, and one of them is that great David Hockney painting called The American Collector, which is of Fred and Marsha Weissman. Uh, it's two collectors outside. The patio is completely clean swept. The glass. Uh, behind the in the building is totally gleaming. Uh, it has that kind of flat quality of those California right. David Hockney paintings, where it's this intense modern architecture against a blue sky with, a, with that light and the shadows and the and 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 it has a totem pole. And it's clear this marriage is not long for this world. And but it's a very wonderful painting. And uh, about forty five minutes later, I had left the museum. I'd gone to the art fair there, and there and I turned the corner. 
And in the art fair on, on the wall of one of the booths was exactly the same painting. I said, wait a second, I've seen this painting already. And, and, but it turned out when you look carefully that the collectors had been replaced by the gardeners. And it was quite amazing in, it for me in the way that Hockney taught us to look at Los Angeles to notice things in L.A. that we'd never thought of as the subject of art. As, so, as, but, Hockney, was, as Hockney was himself uh, an outsider to Los Angeles. I mean, the, at, the at, ultimate at, outsider, insider of Los exactly Angeles. exactly the moment, uh, the same age as it turned out that Romero was when he painted this painting. Hockney had arrived in L.A. and he had noticed those boxy apartments, the sprinklers, all these crazy things in L.A. And he made them iconic, things that we growing up here had never thought to notice. One of the things that strikes me the most about these David Hockney paintings um, that you're recreating and altering is that they, you know, they're they're beautiful in a way that I don't always think of Los Angeles being, but they're, you know, they they also feel true to some parts of Los Angeles, like they're recognizable, and they feel kind of like a stolen moment, like you're kind of looking at something that you, uh, that's a almost a secret in a way. Um, and that feels very resonant to me with your inclusion, Ramiro, of, you know, of a pool cleaner or a... A shower stall scrubber, for example. Yeah, the one in the shower stall is pretty intense. Yeah, um, because it feels like, it feels like you're looking at something very, almost secret and intimate because there are people that you don't take the time to acknowledge and look at. Yes, these are private moments happening currently uh, behind these mansions and these these walls, if you will. You don't see from the street what's going on inside, but I have the experience of being inside and seeing these temporary moments that don't necessarily get captured. Somebody coming into the home, doing their labor, and moving and going about their business on a day-to-day None of it is represented for history to contemplate it. But from the artist's perspective, the the need to showcase this temporary moment, um, yeah, that goes into the work, that goes into how I frame this as sort of these snapshots, these intimate glimpses into what life is like inside a home. Essentially, by the way, he one time we were driving in the Hollywood Hills. These, these were the hills in which he had worked when he was nannying. He said, you know, demographically what happens in these hills is really amazing because from... 10 to 5 o'clock in the evening, this is a Latino town. And then at 5 o'clock, all the vans and the gardening pickup trucks and so forth leave, and all the limos and the sports cars come up the hill. And from, from 5 o'clock in the evening till 10 the next morning, it's an Anglo town. That's a cra- I mean, that's something that I recognize very vividly. I live on the east side of Los Angeles. I don't spend a ton of time on the west side. But uh, if I go to an estate sale in Bel Air at noon... It is like an alternate version of Bel Air that doesn't exist at 6 p.m. Yeah, and it's fascinating to think about that because uh, you understand that experience as a viewer in Los Angeles in general. But as an artist, it's important for me to document that reality so that history also sees that. Because those memories that we have, those visions that we have, those experiences that we have only exist within our heads. Uh, They don't necessarily get captured and and shared easily unless someone records it. I'll finish my conversation with Ramiro Gomez and Lawrence Weschler after a break. Ramiro will talk about giving immigrants who might otherwise stay silent a voice. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Thanks for listening to Bullseye. When you're in the mood for some fun, check out the Ask Me Another podcast for games, trivia, and puzzles. Brush up on your Shakespeare with Sir Patrick Stewart. Play Dirty Jobs in Space with Mike Rowe. And see what you know about TV shows you watched as kids. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts. npr.org slash podcasts. And on the NPR One app. Hi, my name is Jonathan Van Ness, and I am the host of Getting Curious. Let me ask you a question. What do you know nothing about, but you just can't stand to, like, find anything about it because it's just too stiff? I know for me, there was too many things to even count. So I decided I needed to start a podcast where I could find things out and make them more easily digestible to not only myself, but to you. You can find Getting Curious on iTunes or on MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ramiro Gomez and Lawrence Weschler. Weschler's book, Domestic Scenes, showcases Gomez's art. One of the things, Ramiro, that I think is so interesting about uh, the way that you present people in these is that, um, you know, there's an initial understanding that you're representing people that aren't often represented. But it seems to me like that kind of covenant of invisibility goes both directions, that you're sort of poking holes in the in the membrane from both sides because of what you described in terms of growing up in San Bernardino that um, it was hard work to look out as well as what we presume to be the you know the looking in. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned about the looking out versus looking in. I'm in multiple worlds at once. I I'm part of multiple communities. When I'm inside a home, when I was working inside a home, you know, I'm at once the nanny there, but at the same time I have all this life experience, my own family back home that is with me. So mentally, I'm there in the home, and I'm also over with my family in San Bernardino. You know, similar to that, the people I'm representing in some of these paintings, not only are they working in Bel Air or in these affluent communities here in Los Angeles, uh, but they also are coming from families that are in other countries even, families that they've left behind in places like Guatemala and Haiti and Philippines, and they're here working trying to do something about this experience that they left behind in order to maintain that experience. And I try my best to reflect this internal struggle through small representations of the labor. The bodies have slouches. The The figures that I'm painting on cardboard outside are weathered. Uh, it shows you the effects of labor on their bodies. Um, I, I was, I'm lucky enough to be, a, a, like you, a native-born American citizen, I grew up in an immigrant community and, you know, a lot of the people that you portray are people who are working in the cash economy. It's reasonable to assume that a lot of those people are working in the cash economy because they're undocumented. And one of the effects that I saw of this kind of shadow economy of undocumented people is that this is a place that they live and have chosen to live and, uh, you know, is in many ways an incredible land of opportunity and so on and so forth, at least maybe for their kids, if not for them. It's also a place where in order to live there, they have to maintain a certain amount of invisibility. Yeah, it's it's safer to be in the background, I think. When someone comes into a home to do a job, they don't want to upset anybody because there is no protections for them. As undocumented, nobody's going to advocate 
in case someone decides to just let them go. That That's a, a feeling I like to evoke with the artwork, that anxiety that exists, that constant state of feeling at once part of something, but then at the same time feeling like you won't maintain that job. My stepmother was essentially a refugee, although I don't know if she would characterize herself as such. And she got her immigration status through an amnesty in the 80s. So she had permanent resident status and um, was kind of ambivalent about America. And it took her many, many years to get her citizenship. And when she finally decided to become a citizen, I talked to her about why. And she said, well, what if I decided to commit a crime? (laughs) Which is a pretty good line. But, I mean, I think it also represents the fact that she had lived her whole life in the United States with the understanding that if something went wrong, uh, that would mean the end of the life that she knew. Yeah, and that's a strange feeling. Like, I carry my own parents' weight with that question. If something went wrong... That's it. You know, they don't have any type of security in that sense. I wouldn't be here if something went wrong on my dad's journey here or on my mom's journey here. Um, I carry that responsibility. In fact, going forward with the artwork I'm now doing that represents that labor. I had a strange experience interviewing his father. I went to the house and they were having one of their barbecues and he was out at the barbecue. And I asked him to tell me a story. And he like he would not stop every single detail of the story. And you suddenly realize that for him, every single one of those details had to go right. As he looked back on his life, if a single thing had gone wrong, one, it would have all been over this whole thing. And 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 if you realize the weirdness of two people in a room, the owner and the an employee, with that kind of disjunction of their, it's just crazy. It's crazy making. And it's part of what this art so powerfully evokes, I think. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Ramiro Gomez and Lawrence Weschler. Weschler just published a book showcasing Gomez art. It's called Domestic Scenes. Ramiro, do you ever feel guilty about the distance that you put between your old life as a kid and a teenager and your new life as a painter and a, you know, man about town? <laughs> it's strange. I... I don't lose that kid inside me that was, you know, struggling with identity. I don't ever lose that young adult that was struggling with school. Um, All those things make up who I am now. They are part of who I am now. And they, in fact, put things into context for me so I don't get too carried away with the new realities, the new invitations. These things, they don't change me. They just introduce new things, and I am able to fall back on my family's dynamic at home in San Bernardino that doesn't care about any of that. They provide my safe space uh, so that I can just go back there and be back in that headspace, be back in San Bernardino with my family. When you go back there, do you bring your husband? I do. My husband loves to actually join us out there. Uh, His family is very similar to mine in the case of working class. um, The connection also. It's interesting. He's only two or three generations in from people that migrated from Europe. um, And they have very specific feelings about that as well. I really do love going out to San Bernardino, away from Los Angeles, to tap into uh, home for me. And he, I think, feels the same. Well, I mean, it's a pretty pretty common thing for folks to struggle with the adult identities 
of first generation kids whether or not they're gay and i imagine that you being a gay city guy and an artist rather or yeah, a nanny yeah, rather than a, yeah. than a doctor or whatever yeah. they hoped I remember thinking my parents just don't understand me and being a little bit angry at that. It's go-to complaint from every teenager. Uh, but all along, my parents really just wanted to understand me. They just wanted to know the things that they learned through me and through the things that I've presented them with uh, allows them to grow as parents. They, they care for me. They care for my husband. They care for who I am now. And they, they're proud of that now. They understand that they have a lot of capabilities to understand these complex issues. Do you have uh, domestic employees in your life, Romero? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my partner has a housekeeper that he's worked with or has come to clean the apartment. Long before I, I moved in, she comes from Hungary. And uh, sometimes, in fact, I would actually be working as a nanny and the money I would make as a nanny, I would in turn have to give over to her through a paycheck. I, I think that the power of my work lies in my understanding, not just from one end, the worker's experience, but on the other, the employer's experience and how to find a middle ground so that we can just reflect on what it all means. By the way, one of the things that's striking me, I don't think that the work is a criticism of the existence of work. But it, it, it's a calling out that we should at least look at what's going on and treat each other as human beings across that divide. That's what's missing in, in a lot of this stuff, and, and that's what the work calls attention to. It's, you know, there will be child care people doing it, but they should be treated well and, 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 and more than anything else, just recognized, looked at in the face. Rumira, often the people in these paintings have abstracted faces, um, blurred faces, almost no faces. Uh, why is that? It is a tactic I use to engage the viewer a little deeper. Um, if I were to put details, I think the the viewer would just dismiss it as someone and not really look further. But without the details, it challenges them to fill in the gaps for themselves, think about their own experiences and their own nannies, their own parents, people that I've, they've seen. Uh, it also is a strategy for me to employ universality. Um, I am working with a predominantly Latino workforce here in Los Angeles, but it's not just Latinos. There's people from the Philippines, people from Haiti. But all the paintings have titles that are real names, specific names. So it ha does both things. Have you ever had the chance to share any of your work with uh, the people who were, I don't know if it, without faces, I don't know if you can call them subjects, but inspirations? Yeah, um, there's a Fascinating thing with the housekeeper that I worked with, uh, she and I engaged on a daily basis and she would share with me things like, I love art, but I don't feel the ability to be able to go into a museum or gallery. Um, she was working and yet loved to see the work around. She also didn't feel comfortable going into spaces. So she would say, you know, things to me like, when I get picked up by my husband, there's a crowd around a gallery and I want to go in, but I can't. I don't feel comfortable going in. So she would share that with me, and that sort of inspired my idea to create artwork that she does feel a connection to. Uh, she came to a show that I had where she was definitely one of the figures in the, the, the work. And it's also an interesting exchange because she has some of my drawings that I would just give to her as well to have this sort of collection built. Um, 
that exchange happens on you know multiple levels. If I'm I'm creating this work, I like to think that other people that have this experience with their own parents working in these spaces uh, now have reflections of their parents' labor as well. What's the scariest part of doing this work to you? It would be easier to have said nothing and just continue doing my job, considering all these things that I'm bringing up challenge me personally to respond to something in the world that doesn't get changed easily. Um, that's that's scary to think that unless I change certain things, create artwork or something, my time on this earth, my family's time on this earth, the people that I'm representing's time on this earth wouldn't be documented otherwise. Well, Ramiro Gomez, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank you. Ren Weschler, always great to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Ren Weschler and Ramiro Gomez's new book is called Domestic Scenes. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. There's a famous scene about two-thirds of the way through The Third Man. And by the way, there are going to be some spoilers here. So if you haven't had a chance to catch The Third Man in the last 66 years or so, there's not much I can do for you. But anyway, this scene. Joseph Cotton is the hero. He's visiting post-war Vienna, and he's just figured out his old friend has been stealing penicillin, cutting it, and then selling it on the black market. The old friend, the bad guy, is Orson Welles. Kids are dying because their medicine's messed up. And Cotton... The visitor, he can't believe it. To Wells, it's natural because he's gone native. And after the war in Vienna, everything's askew. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see, not the police. Remember that, won't you? Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fellow said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. What amazes me about the third man is that it's both a Michelangelo and a cuckoo clock, art and a machine. The movie's as woozy and shaky as post-war Vienna is. It's shot off-kilter. The wide lenses just barely distort the edges of the landscapes. You never quite settle in. It's genuinely artful. But it's also fast and sharp and charming and mysterious. It couldn't exist without Citizen Kane, but unlike Kane and forgive me for this, unlike Kane, it's fun. It's a mystery. The pieces fit together, like clockwork. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. We'd run anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Of course, a situation like that does tempt amateurs, but... Well, they, you know, they can't stay the course like a professional. Now, the city, it's divided into four zones, you know, each occupied by a power, the American, the British, the Russian, and the French. But the center of the city, that's international, policed by an international patrol, one member of each of the four powers. 
Wonderful. What a hope they had. All strangers to the place, and none of them could speak the same language, except a sort of smattering of German. Good fellows on the whole did their best, you know. Vienna doesn't really look any worse than a lot of other European cities. Bombed about a bit. Graham Greene, who wrote the movie, had Cotton and Wells' characters down as British. Noel Coward was supposed to star. But they ended up American, and as it turns out, that's perfect. Cotton is a dime-store novelist. He's a little bit of a buffoon. Just foolish enough and just American enough to think he always has the answer, that he can figure it out and he can set things right. Wells is American, too, with just enough American arrogance to think he has the system beat. Just enough amorality to make a buck. And just enough charm to make you almost think it's okay. The only Englishman they left is the military policeman who's after Wells, Major Calloway. We think maybe he's crooked or lazy, but in fact he genuinely seems to believe he can order this crooked world from the outside. And what could be more British? I told you to go away, Martins. This isn't Santa Fe. I'm not a sheriff and you aren't a cowboy. You've been blundering around with the worst bunch of racketeers in Vienna, your precious Harry's friends, and now you're wanted for murder. Put out drunk and disorderly, too. I have. What's the matter with your hand? Parrot bit me. Oh, stop behaving like a fool, Martins. I'm only a little fool. I'm an amateur at it. You're a professional. Been shaking your cap and bells all over town. Payne, get me the Harry Lime file and get Mr. Martins a large whiskey. I don't need your drinks, Calloway. You will. I don't want another murder in this case, and you were born to be murdered, so you're going to hear the facts. You haven't told me a single one yet. It's all dark irony in the end. Not one character does what they set out to do. Calloway doesn't bring his man to justice. Wells ends up dead, left lying in the sewer like the rat he is. Cotton never exonerates his friend, and he never gets the girl. The girl loses her man and can't quite separate herself from his darkness. Everyone thinks they have power, that they have self-determination, that they're important. But everyone's barely a hair ahead of death. In fact, the whole film is framed by death. Three funerals, beginning, middle, and end. And do those lives matter? Was Wells right? I watched The Third Man a few days ago, and the music's still rattling around in my brain. Just an unaccompanied zither plunking along, smiling, but just that much askew. It seems at home in a place where the rules don't apply, or maybe in a place where the rules do apply, but never in the ways we expect. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our new producer is Dan Gallucci. Welcome, Dan. Think about calling him the Galooch. Thanks to Jennifer Marmer for production help again this week. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Parello. Our production assistant is Christian Duena. Senior producer at Maximum Fun is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music at the top of the show. Thanks this week to Manya Zuba for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. You can grab them online at MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, politics in pop culture. Pop Rocket. Find it. It's easy. Use the internet. I guess that's about it. Just remember, 
All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.